Welcome to Incognito the Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fosberg, and I am pleased and excited to bring you a fourth season of podcast interviews with once again a variety of leaders, creators, and business people from a vast array of fields and disciplines. However, before we begin with the conversations, I thought I'd take this episode to talk a little bit about where we are now. And what I mean by that is where we are now in our country in terms of our collective inclusivity. I'm going to take a stab at what might seem to be a politically fraught battle in the perception of how we include or exclude various marginalized groups. And, and let, me, let me be clear that politics is not the focus of my work. My work is about human beings and finding commonalities. But let's just admit that these days, everything has become politicized. And I do mean everything. So whether I talk about transgender individuals or the use of pronouns, Black Lives Matter or religious groups, book bans, or the teaching of slavery in schools, each topic has been politicized. And to some degree, it feels as if you cannot realistically talk about any topic without the word politics being thrown into the mix. Again, politics is not my focus or my expertise. You, you may already have a clear sense of my ideology. After all, we all carry biases, some implicit, some explicit. But my main goal here on this podcast and in my work is to find ways in which we connect. And as I've said thousands of times over, we have more in common than different. And it is in that factual statement in which I wish to focus on in today's podcast. Why are we so focused on the differences these days? In an upcoming podcast conversation, I spoke with a trans activist who informed me that currently over 400 anti-LGBTQ bills have been drafted across the United States, which would limit or even ban rights to thousands and thousands of individuals. Ellie Krug is a trans woman activist and attorney who is distraught by what she sees happening across our country. It is deeply personal to her as she fears where and how she can travel to other states from her current safe home in Minnesota. What rights will she lose as she crosses the border into another state, which won't allow her to use the bathroom of her choosing, or perhaps simply even being recognized as a human being? You can hear our full podcast interview in a couple of weeks. The politics of this is that all of these bills are being proposed and passed by Republican lawmakers, some even against more moderate and sensible Republicans in each state, some under the guise of indoctrination or grooming, as they have so cleverly put it. They say they are worried about their children. No need to point out that there are plenty of other harms in their children's way in which they totally ignore guns, social media, mental health issues, and on and on. They are worried about unfair advantages in allowing trans athletes to compete in sports. Yet, no one mentions the fact that there are scant few trans athletes actually competing against their kids. They are worried about a man dressed as a woman entering a woman's bathroom and assaulting their children, when in fact there have been no 
known instances of such occurrences perpetrated by actual trans women. They use fear instead of facts. I read somewhere that percentage-wise, in a room of a hundred people where ten had no health care, ten were food insecure, and twenty people had experienced some kind of gun violence, approximately two of those people, one and a half actually, identify as transgender. And it is those people that most Republican politicians seem focused on. Damn the other 40 experiencing serious social harms. Politics. Before we take a look at the politics of book bans popping up all across the country, let me first single out currently the most harsh and major politicizing offender in our country. And I am speaking of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Over the course of the past year, he has taken the mantle of being the anti-woke warrior, the crushing the libs liberator, and perhaps one might say the anti-democratic demagogue. He has used his perch and, of course, his potential pending run for the Republican presidential nomination to pass laws he tells us are common sense and in line with his most recent book titled The Courage to be Free. I recite that apt title thick with irony. His version of free is to get rid of freedoms he does not like. He passed a bill, made law in July of 2022, dubbed the Don't Say Gay Law, which bans lessons on sexual orientation and gender identity in classrooms up through third grade, and is now expanding that to go through 12th grade. The language of the law is intentionally vague and could stifle conversations in a classroom about a teacher's gender or orientation, a student's family situation, or in some cases, even a book discussion about a character's gender or sexual orientation. I'll, I'll discuss more on books later in this podcast. This law led to the rift between Disney and DeSantis when the Magical Kingdom came out criticizing the bill and the governor proceeded to take away Disney's special tax status in Orlando as retaliation. We can certainly argue about whether Disney should even have a special tax status, but to retaliate against a company simply because they exercise their First Amendment rights seems a bit authoritarian to me in what we call a democracy. DeSantis then passed a bill dubbed the Anti-Woke Law, which prohibits public schools and companies in the state from leveling guilt or blame to students and employees based on race or sex. Basically, prohibiting anything being taught that makes white people feel bad about themselves. The law has been held up by a federal judge and will not apply to colleges and companies, although it is currently does so in elementary schools. In a side note, when the ruling was appealed by the governor, a district judge struck down the appeal and called the law positively dystopian. There are currently several lawsuits pending against the law, and yet the DeSantis administration still expects to prevail. Finally, the DeSantis administration has taken over Sarasota's New College of Florida and is determined to transform the liberal arts college into a conservative classical college along the lines of Hillsdale College in Michigan. 
By appointing the controversial right-wing antagonist Christopher Rufo to the board, along with others who possess extreme right-leaning credentials, he is hoping to reshape the longtime freewheeling college into something with much more of a rigid conservative agenda. For those of you unfamiliar with the work of Christopher Rufo, he calls himself a right-wing journalist who has almost single-handedly reimagined critical race theory into the boogeyman of anti-white racism. More on that later in the podcast as well. So, working in concert with those who hold extreme conservative views, we are being told that the left is indoctrinating our children. The left is grooming them to be gay, trans, woke about history, and educated on civil rights. Okay, so as long as we're talking about education, let's get back to the books. There aren't exactly any good numbers currently as to where we sit right now as of April 2023, but the last best statistics I can find from PEN America suggests there were 681 attempts to ban or restrict library resources targeting 1,651 different books through the first eight months of 2022. And I'm sure that number has grown since. So why should I discuss book bans here? Seems maybe pretty specifically political, doesn't it? Well, books are how we share our stories, stories of who we are, how we see ourselves, how we navigate this world as who we are. It is in books that we see ourselves, our stories, our lives, it is also books that help us understand our paths, our history, our dreams. Books can certainly be about politics and political ideology, but the books being banned are about people, yet are being framed as ideology, or again, as political grooming. In almost every instance, children are not being required to read these books. It is optional and in most cases, just simply available to them in their library, their school libraries. Two thoughts on this. First, I don't know, when you were a kid and your parents told you that you couldn't do something, what was your response? Call me crazy, but my response was usually to do what was being forbidden. If they told me I shouldn't read something, mine never really did, I was probably going to try and read it when I could get my hands on it. And as for getting my hands on it, secondly, don't parents know that most kids can probably find almost anything on the internet? Whether through social media, Wikipedia, academic sites, or somewhere else in the deep, dark corners of the internet, you can find everything and anything you would like to get your hands on. Do I like that we can find absolutely anything there? Yes and no. But the fact is it's there, and there is little that parents can do, or anybody for that matter, unless we want to take a path like an authoritarian government as in China and limit access to certain content. I completely agree and sympathize with a parent's right to keep their kid from reading a certain book or movie or even certain content on the Internet. However, it is wrong for them to also keep that same book, movie, or internet access out of another kid's hands. That decision is between that other kid and their parents. We don't need a morality police. What works for one family may not for another. These are the freedoms we so cherish. It is a part of our contract with democracy. 
So who are these complaining parents really protecting? My guess is themselves. They find these books and ideas objectionable and will go to any length to try and keep what they view as bad ideas and books out of their kids' hands and heads. Some have framed the books, along with discussions in the classroom about gender, as grooming, as if teachers, administrators, and their ilk are grooming their children to be gay or trans or learn to hate themselves because they are white. They use the word indoctrination as if their child's school has somehow become sort of a concentration camp or penal colony or gay recruitment center. Isn't it also indoctrination to keep these books, internet access, or factual history out of the hands of others? In other words, you are indoctrinating people to think and act like you. These parents, along with the conservative politicians who pander to them, are offended schools are attempting to teach black American history. They label the accurate teaching of this history a fake or false narrative. The deep irony is that their own rewriting of said history was propagated to promote the false narrative of the lost cause, a belief that the Confederacy was not driven by slavery and was a just and heroic cause. Or they fret that teaching actual history is making their kids feel racist, angry, hurt, and just plain bad about themselves. <laughs> let's, let's be realistic here. History is not being taught to make people feel bad. <laughs> that is not the purpose or point of history lessons. Historians don't write books about periods of history to make people feel bad. That would be a terrible marketing idea. Can you imagine a historian saying in a press interview that their goal was to make the reader feel bad about themselves when reading their work? Who would buy that book? And educational tomes about history are meant to give an overview of the paths we've taken as a country. It's difficult enough to teach these days. Why would teachers intentionally want to turn off their students? When speaking of history, we quite often hear the quote, those who forget their history are condemned to repeat it which was a slight variation on the original, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And although American history is fraught with horrific events, difficult transitions, and sometimes shameful actions, it is neither the intention of the historical record to cause harm, nor the objective of the lesson to make students feel shame. The goal, as one might gather from the quote, is for us to learn from our mistakes, as well as rejoice in our accomplishments. Of course, this is assuming that one can even own up to making mistakes. Or, if I may quote James Joyce, a man of genius makes no mistakes. His errors are volitional and are the portals of discovery. Or, as his quote is sometimes more simply condensed, mistakes are the portals of discovery. Recent efforts by the College Board to craft a high school AP class that focused on African-American studies was met with disdain by the governor of Florida for pushing a political agenda. He said, We believe in teaching kids facts and how to think, but we don't believe they should have an agenda imposed upon them. When you try to use black history to shoehorn in queer theory, you are clearly trying to use that for political purposes. <laughs> so much to unpack here. First, are we really teaching kids to think? 
shouldn't we be offering them the historical record and allowing them to come to their own conclusions? Are we leading them to use critical thinking, not how to think? There was a remarkable instance at a Texas school district where a memo to teachers was discovered to have suggested when teaching the Holocaust, it was important for teachers to use examples from both sides of the issue. That, that's, that's outrageous. And it is equally outrageous that certain schools are being instructed to sanitize slavery and black history. Which now brings us to the facts. Whose facts? In DeSantis's factual history lesson, queer people do not exist, nor does the Black Lives Matter movement. Certain black authors, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Toni Morrison, to name a few, black feminism, reparations, and certain historians whose work violates Florida law, which banned the teaching of critical race theory, defined by them as instruction that suggests anyone is privileged or oppressed based on their race or skin color. First of all, that is not the focus of critical race theory, which many of us already know for a fact is not being taught in high schools. CRT, essentially a college law course, posits that race is a social construct and that racism is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but also something embedded in legal systems and policy. <laughs> not exactly what could be described as your average middle or high school history lesson. Also, are we still not clear that people are oppressed due to their race or skin color? After the multitudes of lawsuits, the ongoing discoveries of redlining and mortgage inequities, the episodes of black homeowners' residences being professionally undervalued, the vast disparities in health care, the inequalities in the criminal justice system, policing in black neighborhoods, and on and on, are we still willing to teach these actual situations don't exist? And finally, what exactly about queer theory makes it political? As if this is not crazy enough, we are talking about a class, the African-American AP class, that is optional to study. Students are not forced to take these classes, just like they are not forced to take AP classes in Chinese or French or German or Italian or Japanese or Spanish language and culture. Has Mr. DeSantis gone over these other cultural AP classes with a fine-tooth comb, ready to scrub them free of factual things that offend him? In Florida recently, a mother whose second-grade daughter was in a class that was shown the movie Ruby Bridges, the true story about six-year-old Ruby Bridges and her 1960 odyssey to integrate a New Orleans elementary school against the taunts of racism, the mother filed a formal complaint to have the movie removed from her daughter's school, even though the school sent permission forms to the parents two weeks in advance of the showing, and this particular mother opted to have her daughter pulled out of class during the showing. The mother felt the movie would teach kids how to be racist, <laughs> when in fact it probably does quite the opposite. The school district promptly banned the movie, but later convened a meeting in which parents and staff voted to overrule the ban and reinstate the movie into curriculum. 
How is it that one parent can upend the cart for so many students? And, and who wants to take bets that that parent in question has never actually seen the movie? <laughs> Why are we allowing this to happen? Here, here's a little thought experiment. When I was young, I struggled with math. I still do a bit. <laughs> I would even venture to say that math made me sick to my stomach. Math was so difficult for me that it made me feel bad about myself. If math made me feel so bad, would it be possible in today's parent-driven school choice environment in Florida for my mother to complain that math was making her child feel bad about himself and therefore should be banned? Meanwhile, in actions on the other side of the aisle by what has been dubbed the woke party, college campuses continue to be a lightning rod for cancel culture of right-leaning speech. Recently at Stanford Law School, a right-leaning judge who has penned anti-LGBTQ and anti-marriage equality writings was recently heckled at a forum in which he was invited to speak by the Campus Federalist Society, a shadow group that promotes right-leaning judges to the bench. He was unfortunately forced to retreat as the situation was exacerbated by remarks made by the head of DEI for the school in an attempt to quell the situation. And then there is the effort to create what is being called equity language guides by a variety of organizations in an attempt to mitigate harm of certain words by replacing those words with language that is neutral. The cleansing language seeks to mitigate harm to marginalized communities by eliminating any trace of privilege, hierarchy, bias, or exclusion. These guides deem such words as stand, Americans, blind, and crazy to be harmful in that not everyone can stand. We're not all Americans who live in the United States. Some people may have a sight disability, and crazy can harm those struggling with mental health issues. And these are just the tip of the enormous iceberg laid out by leading institutions and nonprofits, and crafted by a powerful yet very small group of progressive activists. There is an eye-opening article by George Packer in The Atlantic that shines a bright light on the ridiculousness of this endeavor. This on the heels of the Tennessee legislature expelling two elected Democratic black congressional leaders for staging a protest about lax gun laws yet sparing a Democratic white female congressional leader for doing the same. Politics and race, an age-old formula in the South. There are so many racial incidents smeared with political backlash happening daily that it is enough to make one's head spin. I guess one might say, I consume too much news, and one might be correct. Who can possibly keep up with all these charged incidents? I'm not even going to weigh in on the recent controversy in sports. Following the NCAA women's basketball final game that saw some trash-talking amongst players and the first lady's off-the-cuff invitation to have both teams visit the White House, it seemed everybody's head exploded. What was lost in all the banter back and forth was that this was the most-watched women's game 
ever, by a long shot, not to use a basketball pun. So here's an observation I have after doing this work for going on 20 years. Every day I read, see, and consume information that relates to race, racism, prejudice, disenfranchisement, and all manner of discriminatory treatment. Every day. And I acknowledge that the news we consume is not really slanted toward the positive, but rather the negative. But there are stories of people who are engaging in very positive, helpful, uplifting work across a wide spectrum of cities, organizations, and cultures. We need to elevate these stories and people so they can be the ones that drown out the negative journalism which seems to get all the attention. And in elevating these stories and people, we can also offer support and transformation of our workplaces and communities. In, in the tone I set forth by creating this podcast, I am urging people to step up and accentuate the positive. Send me the stories you hear and read, the stories of people transforming communities and workspaces, reshaping the ways in which we connect and serve, helping us become a better us. I'm also asking you to reach out to your political representatives and urge them to unite rather than divide. And if you happen to live in an area where they are already doing that type of work, let them know you appreciate their efforts. One other thing I will mention is that we all see the world through our own respective lens. That is, we, we each see the world differently because we are all different. We, we are all the same and yet different. Therefore, I acknowledge that the way I've perceived certain events in this podcast may not be the way you see them. We each come to the table with a different perspective and view of how we see the world. But we can't let that separate us, however. I will openly admit that coming together when we are coming apart is no easy task. And for me, sometimes my first instinct is to allow the anger I feel towards those who simply can't see the world my way to cloud the way in which I approach people. I find I must repeatedly check myself in order to keep an open mind and heart. And I am determined to continually keep checking myself in an effort to unite rather than divide. I, I think about this a great deal as I have lately embarked on taking my message to church groups across the country. Each congregation, each pastor or church leader will undoubtedly see the world differently. And yet, even in the scriptures they study, it is important for them to embrace rather than divide, to reach out rather than repel, to open their hearts rather than to close their minds. Again, no easy task, yet a task well worth the effort. Think about it. Who wants to live in fear and anger? I don't want to obstruct anyone's freedom any more than I want to own the libs. Or, as Rodney King once said after he was nearly beaten to a pulp by a group of LAPD officers, the video of which played nationally to a horrified public, provoking riots and outrage for which the offending officers collectively spent not one day in prison. He said, Why can't we all just get along?
Thanks again for listening to Incognito, the podcast, as we begin an exciting fourth season. If you are unfamiliar with the podcast, I record 10 episodes, which we call our season, take a break for about six weeks, and then return with a new season of 10 conversations. Every once in a while, I tackle a solo episode like today's, but mostly the conversations are with a variety of folks from a wide spectrum of business and the arts. This season, I'm especially excited for you to listen in, as I have guests ranging from a trans woman activist and trainer, who I mentioned earlier in this podcast, to the co-artistic director of Steppenwolf Theater, to a couple of mental health advocates, a community-based researcher, an improvisation teacher, a professor of engineering, and an Episcopal rector. If you're a new listener, welcome. I hope you found something here that you can use in your work life or community. And if you are returning, I'm so happy to have your continued support. I personally listen to a good number of podcasts, and I realize how difficult it can be to sustain listenership over time. So for those of you who call yourselves longtime listeners, I really appreciate that you still find value and interest in what is being said here. As always, we welcome your suggestions and encourage you to rate and comment in your podcast app. Ratings and comments help people find us and allows us to spread the word about this work. Also, you can find us on Instagram at Incognito the Play. Find us there, follow us, hit us up with a question or a comment. We have a limited social media presence, so I'm urging you to take an additional step to tell someone you know about this work. I'll be back again next week with yet another conversation that delves deeply into identity, authenticity, and ways in which we can create inclusive communities and workspaces. 